Hello, hello, and welcome to Comrades in Farms, both on the Pharmacy Seas Network YouTube channel and also here on Truth Frequency Radio, your protection from deception. Uh, this is sort of a new show here on Truth Frequency Radio. If you haven't tuned in yet, this is Comrades in Farms. We'll be talking about all sorts of regenerative agriculturally related stuff, uh, but also we're going to go into technical details and all sorts of other things like that. Um, so first, let me just make sure I have some audio coming through here uh, um, and have a look at the chat. Uh, so let me just get some feedback from the chat here quick. Make sure that uh, things are functioning correctly. Um, and also while I'm at it, can everyone on YouTube hear me? Okay, looks like uh, people in the YouTube can hear me also. That's fantastic. Very good. Um, all right, so tonight <coughs> uh, I'm going to start out. Let me just make sure uh, I am, in fact, being heard in the chat on uh, TFR. Sound is fine. Okay, wonderful. Uh, thanks, Lucky. I appreciate the feedback. Uh, so tonight uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of farming related stuff. Uh, the first thing I'm going to talk about tonight, I just put a video out on YouTube yesterday about this. I've had an ongoing problem with the uh, uh, skunks getting into my sweet corn. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and about fencing and about deterring skunks. Um, I usually don't have a problem with skunk coming in my sweet corn. Uh, for some reason this year they found it and they got into it and uh, they've been an ongoing problem over the past couple weeks. They've actually destroyed a couple of blocks of it and uh, I mean they've taken out a pretty significant portion of the crop. So uh, you know it, finally it was enough pressure that I went out and I started uh, patrolling and I did put down a few skunks to get them out of there. Uh, I've since gone back and fenced that area in with some uh, like two-inch mesh fence. Um, I usually don't fence the corn block in like that. I usually have an electric fence which protects things from deer and stuff. And the other thing I do is I usually keep a large area around my growing blocks mowed so that uh, no one can, um, so that the animals can't get across that ground without being in open cover and most people know that smaller animals have a tendency not to want to come out from cover and be in an open field they can get attacked by coyotes hawks all sorts of stuff so that's one of the deterrent methods that i use um, so since i put that fence up i had a skunk get in there last night and uh, when i came out on a patrol i did not stop patrolling because uh, i wanted to be sure that i've eliminated the issue and sure enough i go out there last night and there's a skunk inside the fence chewing on sweet corn. So uh, I took care of him as well. And then I went on down the block patrolling and there was another large skunk that uh, I was unable to get a shot at, but I did manage to chase him off. Um, and so, <laughs> so that brought up a point. Uh, my good friend here who is in the chat here on YouTube, actually YTFP Chris, uh, made a comment about once the animals start, uh, you know, once they find a food source, they're going to keep coming back to that food source until it's not there anymore. And uh, he was kind of making the point about how my fence wasn't going to keep them out. And uh, Chris, you're absolutely correct on that. And uh, it's it's something that makes me want to dig into this topic a little bit more. So thanks for that comment. Um, yeah, that's correct. Uh, and so I. 
I was able to get the skunk only because the fence was there. So, uh, <laughs> you know, otherwise he'd have ran off and I wouldn't have got a shot at him. So it's helping in that way and it's helping act as a deterrent. Also, uh, we have a huge woodchuck population around here and I've gotten rid of uh, several of them and they're still just, they just keep populating at this phenomenal rate. So really the way to do it is to keep them out with fence. And, uh, you know, the woodchucks can dig under, but if they dig under, I'm going to find that spot and fix it. So sort of a complex issue, but uh, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about my friend here uh, who's actually also in the chat here on YouTube, Grow the Farm Up. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel, and if you haven't checked it out, it's Grow the Farm. He's a uh, organic seed breeder and producer out in Nebraska, and uh, he's doing some really awesome regenerative agricultural practices. He's using cover crops and uh, rotations and all sorts of great management practices, and he's really uh, helping me uh, roll my education along as far as cover crops and regenerative agriculture at a much improved speed. Our, uh, our chat conversations back and forth in the YouTube comments have been excellent, and I know at uh, some point he's going to come on as a guest, or at least we've uh, tentatively discussed that, so uh, I'll look forward to hearing from him uh, in the future on that. Uh, as a side note, uh, I have had some technical issues here on my end regarding uh, having guests on. I had a guest on last week and uh, the audio didn't pipe through. We had, we had all sorts of issues related to my end, mostly related to Skype. So until I can clear those up, I really uh, am afraid to have a guest on and have another, uh, another issue. So uh, moving along, um, uh, one of the things that uh, Grow the Farm Up was talking about as far as corn, he was saying that the, uh, the deer can often get into the corn um, and be a problem. And I've had that before. I've had, had the deer do all sorts of damage to my corn. Um, but uh, since I put the electric fence up, and the way I put the electric fence up, I set it up so that it's deterring... Uh, it's deterring the deer. There were basically there was a deer pathway directly through the farm here when I started clearing and setting electric fence and kind of building this back into a farming property. For those who don't know, this property was basically abandoned for the last 30 or 40 years as far as farming goes. Uh, there was a horse here in pasture maybe 10 years ago, but uh, other than that, no real um, no real farming has gone on here, and no uh, no maintenance has been done, no mowing or anything. So. When, when I moved, moved here, this was, was all overgrown with rose bushes and trees and thick, tall, uh, you know, perennial grasses and stuff. So I kind of had to conquer those first. And in that process, there was a deer trail that came directly through this property, crossing between different uh, foraging areas for them. And I'll tell you what, as soon as I got that electric fence up and hot, even without closing the gates, uh, it really, uh, you could see the deer pathway change as soon as the fence went hot. Within a week or two, there was a new trample way going around the outside of the fence and on up the hill around my block. Uh, so that was awesome. But there have been times that that fence has been uh, not turned on or has been down. And actually, we got a storm uh, two years ago that brought uh, electric fence, uh, electric fence posting down, and all sorts of stuff. And since I was in the process of expanding an area and cutting a new roadway, and that was going to require moving that electric fence into some new locations and setting new posts, I opted to, um, I opted to uh, just uh, hold off on setting the electric fence back up. Um, but I will say that. Um, 
unless you build a really, really high quality electric fence, you're not going to keep out skunks. And frankly, you're not going to keep out woodchucks around here. Our soils are way too soft and way too deep here. And the woodchucks already have quite a foothold here on this farm. They have a tunnel system that runs all over this farm. And I filled a few of the holes in where they come up near my grow blocks. And uh, I tried filling them in with shovels, rocks, logs. None of that worked. Um, but there were a couple of holes that I filled in where I went to Tractor, the Massey Ferguson, and I put a big old pile of soil on there, and then I picked the whole machine up on the bucket, and I compressed the whole tunnel and that whole spot and packed it in. That seems to be holding them down from coming up through those tunnels, but I have to remain ever vigilant. Um, so as far as keeping deer out, that works great. But uh, anyway, back to my point here. My friend Brad from Grow the Farm Up was talking about... Uh, Part of the reason, well, one of the benefits, I guess I should say, of having squash and using the Three Sisters program, um, which I guess we should just define what that is. The Three Sisters is corn, beans, and squash. And there's lots of reasons that those three crops work really well together. So I guess we'll tear into that a little bit. So number one, squash is a very prickly vined and leafed plant. So it tends to uh, it tends to um, deter raccoons and skunks and those sort of animals from getting in. So if you have squash planted in amongst your corn, uh, you basically have sort of a buffer that keeps them out. And I had forgotten, I had learned about this a couple of years back, and I actually use this method in my pumpkins down in the lower block. Um, there's a block that's more separated from the rest of the farm here. It's further down in the valley and it's kind of more out of my view site and, and an area where I'm not in and out all the time. Um, and so I had electric fence up there and that kept the deer out, but there were definitely woodchucks, skunks, and other animals that would come in there and do damage to those crops. And I learned that previous years from having planted corn in there and having the animals come in. I think it was coons that came in and got some of the corn the one year. And so then that's when I came across the squash thing and I had planted uh, pumpkins. Uh, well, pumpkins are part of the cucurbit family. So I planted pumpkins in there to produce a pumpkin crop and also to deter those animals. And that worked really well. And I'm really glad that Grow the Farm Up, uh, my friend Brad from Grow the Farm Up reminded me about that because I had totally forgotten about that. So I may try and do a squash border around everything next year as a, a sort of a deterrent for those sort of animals and that should help. Um, let's see, so the other advantages are corn, beans, and squash have three different root systems. They use different biology and they have different plant compounds that they produce. So if you look at the root structure, I think I actually have a video that on this on my channel. Uh, maybe last year or the year before. Um, but if you look at the root structure of squash, it's very uh, shallow and very wide. And uh, corn has a wide root structure, but it also has a very deep tap root. And beans have like sort of a more fibrous structure. And also let's not forget, beans are a very important part of this. Beans are a legume and they're a plant that naturally um, will work with nitrogen fixing bacteria very well and nodulate and that can help bring nitrogen in out of the air and into the soil and make it available for the microbiology in the soil and that's really important especially when you're growing a crop like corn that is such a high nitrogen demand um, that can really help offset that. Now along those lines 
my friend Brad has also mentioned that he's using Austrian winter peas in Nebraska as an overwintering lagoon crop, and he said he's had fantastic results and success with it. Um, so that's something that I'm going to look into. I might try and do it this year. I'll have to see if I can get it all together by uh, <laughs> in time to plant it here. Um, hopefully, maybe I can. Uh, but we'll have to see how uh, how budget works out, whether I can get the tiller fixed. Because uh, my understanding, and maybe Brad can confirm for me through chat here, uh, my understanding is that it needs to be drilled down two or three inches in depth uh, for good germination, or at least that's what I uh, that's what I discovered from watching a video from Green Cover Seed. If you guys haven't checked out Green Cover Seed, they have a YouTube channel and they sell all sorts of cover seeds and my friend brad is uh, one of their biggest buyers i think um, anyway they have some excellent information on growing cover crops and uh they're they have a, a really huge huge selection of cover crops and they also have a great youtube channel that details many of the eccentricities of those crops and uh you know how to manage those crops better um, so that's fantastic information there let me just take a check into the chat here and see what's going on. Um, take a look in here on YouTube. Uh, uh oh, hearing double tracks. Sound is good on TFR. Uh, let's see. Uh, double on YouTube. Echo disappeared on YouTube. Sounds good now. Yeah, I don't know, guys. I, I apologize for that. Uh, YouTube seems to be really uh, ornery lately for live streams. Um, uh, let's see roll on down here and then I have a comment back here from Brad grow the farm up You'll want to plant Austrian winter peas at least one to two inches deep and it will help the growth point over winter in the freezing temperatures much better Yeah, and that's what they were saying in that video from uh, green cover seed. So that's important um, Do you think that that's something that I could? Uh, drill in with a tiller Brad or is that something I should hand plant and also I'm curious what the spacing should be on that um Anyway, oh, hello, Bomber, and thank you. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so let's see, what else? Um, so I talked a little bit about fencing. I talked a little bit about cover crops. Um, yeah, so, oh, so going back to the three sisters. Um, so most people see corn as, as a, uh, as a, just a nutrient consuming type crop. And while corn is a rather nutrient demanding crop, it actually has tremendous benefit for the soil as well. If you can get the health of the soil and the corn up high enough, uh, it really puts down quite a bit in the way of exodus. It's a C4 rather than a C3 photosynthesizing plant. And so that means that it can photosynthesize even when it's not exposed to light, uh, whereas C3 plants are unable to do that. Um, now, I'm not gonna go deep into uh, photosynthesis and the Krebs cycle and respiration, all that kind of stuff. But if you're not familiar with that, you might find it interesting to know that uh, grasses and uh, many of the grain crops like corn and forages like that um, are typically C4 type plants. And so they have a little bit more advantage and capability on, um, on photosynthesis. Uh, and, and if you're not familiar with this, photosynthesis is the engine that drives this whole process. You can't build soil without photosynthesis, and you can't grow plants without photosynthesis. And if you can get that photosynthesis up by tuning the trace mineral nutrition of the soil and the plants 
to right on point, those plants can produce tremendously more energy. And when they start producing excess energy, they send that down to the root system to feed the soil in the form of exudates, which is basically complex sugars that the plant has produced. So it feeds back to the microbiology that accelerates the microbiology in the soil, and then that microbiology releases mineral nutrition back to the plants. So that process can actually self-accelerate. And that's a big part of why I use foliar feeds as one of the tools in my toolbox for building soils. Because for very small amount of for a very small amount of material, I can get a tremendous growth response and a tremendous photosynthetic increase and that has tremendous benefits for the soil and sequestering carbon so i'm going to uh, take a look back at the chat here uh, let's see brad says we have been at the cutting edge of transitioning a large-scale farms into more regenerative practices it has been kind of a combination of slowly transitioning farmers from 100 percent dependence on commercial chemicals and slowly transitioning into more cover crops and legume nitrogen fixing overwintering broadleafs as I stated in one of my videos, find the best cover crop for corn and we can, and we can transition. Uh, uh, we can transition much faster uh, than even I had anticipated. It is possible because it's actually putting more dollars in the pockets of farmers and being much more ecologically responsible with less soil erosion and etc. And boy, uh, Brad, I can't wait to have you on as a guest. Uh, <laughs> what a... What an awesome conversation I know we're gonna have. Uh, Brad is one of the few large-scale farmers that I know that really understands regenerative agriculture, and he's actually been doing it for a long time already, um, which is not the norm. Uh, so it's really great to hear uh, feedback from him. And I know he's even said that he's even learning from me from watching me on my small-scale operation. So uh, I'm really excited to hear that. Uh, there's been a long period of time here where I've sort of felt like, uh, and what I is what I'm doing actually helping anyone and I'm starting to get some feedback that you know hey maybe it is so that's good that's encouraging um, let's see uh, um, yeah so uh, going back to what Brad said about putting uh, putting money back in the pockets of farmers yeah that comes back to building soils and that comes back to biology and yeah like Brad was talking about working with the right crops and the right cropping systems and using species diversity and photosynthesis and biology all in combination together you can really build soils tremendously fast i too am very surprised brad even just with some basic cover cropping work that i've done and some foliar feed work and you know using good mulches and just eliminating uh, things that are negative to biology and just trying to stay focused on things that are beneficial from a biological perspective and from a soil and plant health perspective the results that I've gotten already are tremendous I've got a few videos up here on my YouTube channel uh, if you haven't seen them I have some videos comparing areas where I've worked with foliar feeds and some cover cropping versus areas in the same soil where I haven't and it is shades and shades darker after only I think it was two or three years of working like this so it's really evident really quickly and and the really exciting part is not only is the soil shades darker but when you put a plant in that soil it grows so much better so much faster and long term that gives us an advantage over weeds because we can take and put a, a, a crop that we want to grow in that soil and it grows out quickly and and uh and and it has the nutrition in the soil that supports that type of plant um, weeds have a tendency 
in general, weeds are usually there to inhabit smidged and rebuild them. So if you look in an area where a soil has been scraped off and there's no topsoil on top, you'll notice that there's a whole set of species of weeds that come in there first. And then if you watch that plot of soil over time, you'll see that those early on weeds like um, mullein or uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other early ones, uh, mullein, garlic, mustard, uh, at least here in New York, uh, a bunch of others. But you'll see that those tend to actually um, like fade out over time. They'll, they stop growing in that area and other species come in, more perennial species, and over time you'll see that soil start to heal and recover on its own. And so basically this is what we're trying to do by mimicking nature in regenerative agriculture. We're basically looking to study how does nature do this and then mimic that and integrate it into crops and systems that work for us, that give us productive output from it without doing damage to it. Alrighty, well we're back from the break here on TFR Studio, or TFR uh, <laughs> Truth Frequency Radio. This is Comrades in, Ar in Farms, <laughs> Comrades in Arms with Carlton Moore. And I'm a little, <laughs> a little out of it tonight trying to uh, get my manure together here. But uh, let's see, before we move on to honeybees, we got a comment here back from my friend Brad at Grow the Farm Up. It says, for 40 to 60 years, we have completely flipped the natural cycle upside down with ag monopolies and chemical farming and have degraded the soil resources in the process. As an example, when I go to talk to my banker, they want me to use the chemicals and the treated seeds and the expensive everything because it's all an insidious cycle. The bankers have been convinced that farmers will not be successful unless we use GMO seeds and commercial fertilizers. And if you take a business plan in that involves regenerative farming, the bankers will literally laugh you out of their office. That was my first hurdle 15 years ago. Then, when we saw bigger returns, they were mad because my operating costs were lower and they got less money out of it in interest. So that is truly the first hurdle and it's bigger and more mind-blowing than anyone has really imagined. And uh, yes, Brad, I, uh, I can totally relate to that. Uh, the few times I've looked into scaling things up and doing a larger farming operation, I found that uh, it was just you know, nearly impossible without a banker involved. And uh, so far, I don't have a mortgage on a house. I've never made payments on a car, and I'm not involving a banker in my life, just how much that interest actually robs out your income. Um, so I've done things different ways and they're not necessarily they haven't hasn't necessarily been the easy path but uh, I'm not beholden to any bankers and nobody can come along and take what I've worked for uh, in fact most of it ends up being uh, intellectual property more than physical property um, but uh, hopefully that will change in coming years uh, let's see. The next step and the really exciting thing we need to talk about in our conversation farm is higher nutrient density and naturally breeding higher protein and more soluble essential fatty acids that more easily break down and are more soluble in the human body. Just, an just as an example, what if we create, could create a healthier high fructose corn syrup? Uh, that's an excellent thought, Brad. I hadn't considered that from the high fructose corn syrup perspective because, uh, you know, I mean, obviously you're aware of the hazards of high fructose corn syrup regarding human health, but uh, you have an excellent point there. And I know, I know that some research has already been done on GMO crops and uh, 
you know, a lot of that research has not been carried out long term, but even the short term results uh, have not been fantastic as far as uh, the health of the animals that they were tested on. To my knowledge to date, uh, no studies have really been done on human health on long term on the use of GMO crops. But I do know from listening to John Kemp from Advancing Eco Agriculture that uh, GMO crops actually change the microbiology in the soil and they can actually end up creating disease promoting soils. Um, so the, for those who don't know, these regenerative agricultural practices, maintaining species diversity, maintaining good biology in the soil is so, so, so critical. Um, and, you know, even as something as simple as using a little bit of glyphosate, you know, that kind of stuff, it, it, like, first of all, it's an endocrine disruptor, right? So that has tremendous negative health effects on anything that has hormones and that means all living plants and animals because we all use hormones as part of our biological signaling right so when you start disturbing those hormones now you're disrupting all sorts of really sensitive cycles and second of all that stuff has a half-life of 22 years so that means if you put an ounce on your land now in 22 years you're still going to have a half an ounce there in residue 22 years later there'll still be a quarter ounce there and so on and so forth so uh even though these things break down break down air quotes they really have a lot more negative uh, effect on the soil and on the soil biology it's really hard to get good soil biology going when you're putting something down that suppresses biology for those who don't know glyphosate was originally introduced for preventing mold from growing in paints and it was added to paints as an as an antibiological agent for paints and so then they discovered that it worked great for killing plants and then that's when it came into our agricultural system let me pick up where uh, Brad was talking here because he's has some more comments here um, so that more easily break down and are more soluble in the human body oh I read that <laughs> uh, banking business plan turn your money into their money yeah exactly exactly Jack that's uh, from my good friend geeky gardens over at geeky gardens YouTube channel um, <coughs> uh, poor GMO from uh, Let's see, uh, YTFP says, yes, those poor GMO farmers have to get subsidies just to be able to afford seed and can't move away from GMO later because there is so much weed killer in their soil, nothing will grow there anymore. Yes, that's happening. And uh, the seed thing is a bigger thing. I didn't realize what a problem it is to get organic seed on a big scale, but it actually, <laughs> it is. It's hard to get organic seed on a big scale. and. I've had that confirmed more recently in, in talking with Brad because he was saying since he started breeding organic seed, he can't keep up with demand. And uh, so that's a really awesome sign. That means that, that our rege regenerative agricultural systems are starting to take hold and then we are starting to turn it around, uh, at least from a demand perspective. And, and I think that's really encouraging. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned that YT because I uh, have a neighbor across the street um, who uh, who has been using GMO seed and I was talking I was trying to talk to him about some of this regenerative agriculture stuff and he uh, you know he said well I can't even I can't even find a seed that isn't GMO and then they got you on this contract and once you sign that paperwork boy you're into it and if you don't believe me go look up Percy Schmeiser go look what they did to Percy Schmeiser up in Canada he didn't even buy a seed from them his seed was contaminated by another company, <coughs> I think you know who I mean, and uh, 
and they ended up suing him for his contaminated seed because they basically were saying that he was trying to steal their seed from them, which is not the case at all. His family had been growing rapeseed in Canada for over 50 years. They had produced their own seed every year, and it ended up being contaminated, and the only way he found that out was because uh, because he found some, some weeds growing by his power line that weren't dying uh, in, in a Roundup uh, spray where they had sprayed the power line, and then he discovered that that his seed has been contaminated and then they basically stalked this poor guy down and bankrupted him um, so go look up Percy Schmeiser that's uh, a really sad story but it's a good it's a good thing for us to be aware of uh, especially for consumers to be aware of you know part of the reason that I started this show and this YouTube channel is not just to help farmers learn but to help consumers become more aware of the hazards in our food supply and I can tell you there are many 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 hazards in our food systems and uh, you know like <laughs> there's so many it's hard to keep track of it's hard to get good healthy food but rest assured farmers like grow the farm up farmers like Brad are trying to turn this around and there is a wave of new farmers turning on to these regenerative agricultural practices and doing this and I'm really glad to see bread doing it on a big scale that is uh, very encouraging uh, let's see uh, let's see so he says uh, oh yeah high fructose corn syrup is terrible and a bad example but you get my point healthier soy oil would also be a better more widely used example which is what we're doing now yes and so would healthier canola oil I mean I, you know as far as I'm concerned, you shouldn't use canola oil for cooking with. It's just not the right omega-369 ratio. But at least if you're going to use it and you could get it from an organic source, at least you wouldn't have the toxin input in it. You know, at least you wouldn't have that in there. This whole idea of spraying herbicides on the plants that you're going to harvest and consume just seems ludicrous to me, knowing how sensitive uh, the human endocrine system is and that... Uh, many or most of those pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides are not only trace mineral chelators, but they're also endocrine disruptors. <coughs> so, uh, let me see. Uh, let me see what else he says here. Uh, so, Brad uh, goes on to say, you're correct about the sub subsidies. The chemical farming model is falling before our eyes. Evidence is that it has to be propped up and subsidized even to exist uh, think airlines in the 90s. <laughs> yes, well said, Brad. Well said. Um, let's see. Uh, he, Brad goes on to say, I like to be 10 years ahead of the curve and 10 years behind. We are at a crucial and critical tipping point in agriculture today, and I've seen it for 10 or 15 years coming. It is literally hitting now. 2,4-D, or growth regulator herbicides, have been around for 100 years. Glyphosate was like a meteor from space dropping on Earth. Glyphosate is basically not of this earth, and it was the first time in history we shocked the world with a completely different mode and site of action. It killed everything green on planet earth. And as predictably so, Mother Nature always adapts, and very quickly because of overuse. It created resistant weeds it will now be dealing with for 20 years. Roundup was a trial and error in a big, big way. Yes, yes Brad, you're, you're absolutely correct on that. And, uh, you know, the scarier part is not only the impact that we're going to deal with from a weed perspective, but the impact on the environment. Uh, I know that they have taken some rain, I know they have taken rainwater samples worldwide, and they have found 
glyphosate contamination in those rainwater samples, even in some very, very remote places. So the reality is we're, we're getting glyphosate out of the rain on our soil. Now, granted, it's in low, very low concentrations, but you have to understand that these compounds are so powerful that the equivalent of seven drops in an Olympic-sized swimming pool is active active in the soil so it's just something to be thinking about and, and something to understand and, and part of why we're striving so hard to work toward regenerative agriculture and that's a huge part of why we work with cover crops because one of the biggest problems on a farm that we have to manage is weed pressures and if you can't manage those weed pressures organically you're going to end up having to go to chemicals and boy does that take you down a bad bad slope awful quick before you know it those chemicals are suppressing the biology in the soil and before you know it now you're actually setting your soil up for weed populations and and also setting up your customers to be eating chemicals and who wants to eat chemicals you know if somebody offered you a little uh, a little glyphosate as dressing on your salad would you want that no well you know you're doing the same thing if you're spraying it on the plants and i'm not implying that we're spraying glyphosate directly on you know say lettuce crops or anything but if it's get if it's getting on the food it is getting sequestered uh, i should go into a little bit of detail about how glyphosate works and i don't mean to harp just on glyphosate this is just considered to be the safest pesticide on the market today and obviously it's not safe that's really my point but glyphosate works by locking up trace minerals especially manganese and zinc and so uh Okay, hold on. Especially manganese and zinc. Uh, hopefully that will fix the echo there, Bomber. I'm having an audio issue here on YouTube. Uh, and so and so that's primarily how it works. And uh, most of these uh, GMO-based crops that will grow, even though they've been sprayed with glyphosate, basically they have an alternate enzyme pathway. Uh, this is a short explanation for some very in-depth science. Um, but that's how they're able to do it. So um, not only do they lock up manganese and zinc, but also magnesium, potassium, phosphorus, many of the metals that we use in soils, for those who don't know, potassium and phosphorus, and those sort of things are actually in the metals group on the periodic table. And uh, many of those are locked up very easily by glyphosate. And once you start locking those, these things up in soils, now it's that much harder to get that biological life process going again in the soils. Um, uh, we confirm that in the first, maybe for last cover, yeah. Uh, so uh, that's that. And uh, let's see, I was going to talk a little bit about honeybees. So let me just kind of switch gears here momentarily, and uh, we'll talk about honeybees for a little bit. I don't see any callers here on the uh, on the call line on TFR, so uh, I'm going to take a look at the TFR chat quick. Um. <laughs> All right, oh. <laughs> lucky, <laughs> thanks, lucky. <laughs> uh, I do love the TFR chat. Always some interesting things going on over there as well. Let's see. Uh, just before I switch to honeybees here, I have another comment from Brad and. Uh, I just want to share all the information this guy is sharing with me because it's it's really important stuff and uh, well I think I've made my point about that I greatly value his opinion that's what I'm saying 
Uh, he says, I often compare it to energy drinks. We will not know the long-term effects of all those energy energy drinks people have been drinking for a decade, uh, for a decade, for another decade or so. Uh, time is really the only truth. Yes, exactly, exactly, Brad. Uh, so true, and that's so true with so many of the things in our systems, uh, and even even the smart so smartphone cell phone thing. Uh, you know, the amount of blue light that comes off of these screens really disrupts our circadian rhythms. And uh, now we have a whole generation of kids growing up on <laughs> energy drinks and social media and phones with the screen or that blue light coming off of that screen all the time, disrupting the circadian rhythms. And, you know, we look around society, we, we see how things are going and uh, somehow we're not connecting the dots here. There's a nutritional component. There's an energetic component. There's a mentality component. And we really need to like be aware of these things and start start tying them together from a consciousness perspective so that we can start fixing these problems. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I could go on all day about that. Uh, I'm going to jump off my soapbox about that and switch over to my B-box. So... Um, this year, here in New York State, which is where I'm at, <laughs> New York State, I usually say New York, um, but here in New York State, um, we've had a really, really dry season. Uh, I've had to irrigate uh, pretty extensively even to get crops to establish or to grow well, um, and uh, that impact has been shown on the honeybees this year dramatically. Uh, last year, we had what I would basically call a perfect grow season. Uh, perfect weather, good sun most of the time, got about an inch to an inch and a half of rain every week, and uh, it was just an excellent season. And those bees never stopped producing through the entire season last year. There was traffic in and out of those hives for the whole season. Uh, good resources coming in, good pollen and nectar, and, uh, and good bee colony health. Now this year, with the drought that we've had, uh, for most people who, who don't, uh, who haven't really studied honeybees closely it's really really dependent on good flowers and good nectar and pollen being available to supply that nest throughout the year anytime that that tails off you end up with this what's called a dearth and basically the honeybees pull back they're unable to find nectar and pollen and they start consuming their honey resource reserves this is never good if you want to ha harvest excess honey off because they start consuming their reserves and also as part of that, the queen will pull back and regulate and she'll stop laying so many eggs in the nest. And so that means that your uh, colony doesn't grow and expand. What you really want is a colony that starts out in the spring small from the winter over and the queen goes crazy laying, the bees go out and they pull in pollen and nectar and resources and they build that nest up fast. They have lots of nutrition available for that queen and that brood, and they feed her up really strong. And it'll go from, uh, I don't know what the exact number is, but say 500 bees in the hive to say five or 10,000 in the course of a month or even less. And all of a sudden there's this explosion of bees in the colony and all those bees grow up and they start going out and foraging and pulling resources. That hive explodes, it grows to this massive colony. By the end of the season, a really big beehive could have as many as 80,000 bees in it. And then as the fall season comes on, the queen stops laying and those bees start to tail off. Uh, I guess I should go into this a little bit too. A bee life cycle is fairly short. Uh, most bees live around 
30 to 46 days in that range, typically around 46 days if I remember correctly. Uh, whereas a queen honey, a queen honeybee actually can live about five years. They're usually considered viable and really uh, good for two to three years, and then they should be replaced. So that's one of the things that happens when bee colonies swarm out. They're actually replacing the old queen. The old queen takes a portion of the colony, and she flies out, and they go find a new place to inhabit, and they build a new nest there. And then the new queen that rears up is the replacement queen. So what happens is you get a split you get actually two bee colonies that are producing and then oftentimes even if a, even if an old queen dies um, out in that new colony as long as she's been laying eggs and the other honeybees in that colony detect that she hasn't uh, you know the, the queen has died they they uh, communicate primarily by pheromone they're always uh, looking for the queen's pheromone and they actually they spread the queen's pheromone out from the colony for foragers coming back in anyway if that queen dies they can uh, they can actually take a queen cell and start feeding royal jelly to that queen cell and create a new queen uh, and I think it takes about it's either 21 or 28 days I, I don't have my life cycle numbers down precisely yet but uh, it, it's about a month uh, between when that happens and when a new queen hatches out uh, oftentimes they will actually uh, cap several queen cells and those queens will usually hatch out around the same time and they'll challenge each other and whoever is the best queen for the job ends up winning it so there's all sorts of interesting selection points inside of the life cycle of a honeybee colony anyway back to my discussion about that uh, they they ramp this nest up in a tremendous way uh, you know, come springtime and as summer sets in. The early part of the season here in New York, I don't know about other parts of the country, but uh, <laughs> thanks, Bomber. She likes my royal jelly dance. Uh, but York, uh, we have a tremendous flush of flowers and growth here. We have all sorts of, uh, like early on, we have um, uh, willow trees that bloom. Those are some of our earliest, and cottonwood and poplar. And so the bees will go out and start hitting those. And then along with that, we'll get like dandelions and early white clover and uh, some of these other crops, or some of these other uh, species of plants. And then as the season flushes, their colony is expanding. They're pulling these resources in. They're building this colony up with tremendous energy. And then if we stop getting rains like we did this year, we stop really getting any effective rain in the end of May and by mid-June, we were kind of in a drought situation already. And, uh, you know, plants were pretty well established at that point, so they were still growing, so there were still resources available. But certainly by mid-July, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, natural foraging uh, flowers and plants for nectar and pollen weren't available. They weren't, even though the flowers were open, there wasn't enough moisture in the soil to provide moisture for that plant to produce nectar and 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 high quality nectar and pollen um, as a side note honeybees won't even visit a flower unless that flower is seven bricks or higher like they won't even touch it they'll take a look at it they'll sniff it they know that that flower doesn't have a high enough sugar content and they'll skip it and move on to another one um, so it's really uh, it's really interesting to watch these honeybee colonies so then so this year I'm fortunate enough to have planted in some cover crops like buckwheat and holy basil and uh, 
and that sort of thing and I had been irrigating those and so this kind of helped my honeybees come through the dearth but uh, in seeing how they suffered between when the buckwheat crops were open and the drought that we had and uh, more later here in the season we actually got some good rains a couple of weeks ago uh, they they, they're ramping back up now. The goldenrod is opening. Uh, the last plantings of buckwheat that I put in are opening and flowering. And so they're working those crops. And now my sunflowers are starting to open. So I'll have those to go after. And a new flush of white and red clover and other wild forage stuff is coming back now. But had we had that continuous available stuff, uh, I probably would have several hundred pounds of honey uh, already coming on. So... Uh, yeah, so there's that. Uh, let me just go back and look at comments here quick. Uh, check TFR quick. Nothing in TFR at the moment. Uh, and I got to catch up on YouTube. Sorry. Here we go. And I know we're coming up on a break here shortly, so... Um, uh, let's see, Brad says glyphosate is one of the most water-soluble organophosphates ever to be created as an herbicide and then widely sprayed. That's why it's so mobile. Uh, yes, that's true. And I remember, uh, I remember we used glyphosate on uh, the farm when I was uh, 19 or 20. I worked on a farm, uh, long story, but we were using glyphosate there to control weeds between tomato rows. And I remember how easily it dissolved into uh, a tank of water. Uh, more easily than some of the foliar feeds and drenches that I use these days. Uh, anyway, Brad says, I'm no fan of glyphosate. It does have different chemistry makeup that makes it especially water-soluble, but whenever you think uh, whenever you think glyphosate, there are really about 900 other chemical compounds that chemical farming uses glyphosate, and that's just the most famous, so keep that in mind. Yes, I understand there's a combination now of 2,4-D and glyphosate, uh, which is supposed to be the new super weed killer, but of course... <laughs> Those of us in the know know where that's going. Um, let's see. Uh, I could name you off seven different herbicides in 20 seconds that are actually more water-soluble and more harmful. Uh, and those are actually a big culprit for killing bees and beneficial insecticides. Yes, including the neonicotinoids are super, super harmful. Um, so I'm right there with you on that, Brad. Um, it looks like we got about a minute left here before the break, so that's uh, good. Um See, most everybody I know that has tried to go up against them is now bankrupt and out of business and has lost their farm. I'm still alive because I'm providing the industry with something that they can never, uh, that they never can, uh, that they never can, and that is higher nutrient dense, more protein, fiber, healthier seed and food that, that they never can get or produce is basically what he's saying. And that's it. We're uh, headed to the break. Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio and on YouTube on the Pharmacy Seeds Network YouTube channel. That's Pharmacy, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, as in let food be thy medicine. Uh, we're back from the break here. I was talking a little bit about honeybees and the honeybee life cycle before, uh, but I see I've got some comments here from my friend Brad from Grow the Farm Up. Uh, Brad, if you want to call in, I would love to have you call in, but I don't know if you, uh, if you want to do that tonight or if you'd rather just stay with the uh, YouTube chat. Either way, I appreciate your support and the information that you're spitting back to us is fantastic. It is so wonderful to hear from a large-scale regenerative agricultural farmer. There are so few of those guys uh, at least in my area that I can talk to, most of the farmers in my area are conventional farmers, and uh, 
man, it's just really frustrating to watch. You know, you try to talk to them about how to get the soil health and plant health up and that this will end up being more money in their pocket and they just don't want to hear it. They've been brainwashed by the system and uh, or brain poisoned by the system might be a better way to put it. Uh, anyway, let's see. Uh, Brad says, hey, my friends, they almost chopped my head off too. I was smart enough to find the niche market, which is really not a niche market. Healthier food giving the consumers what they want. It's just a matter of breaking through and getting it to the end consumer, which we have successfully been doing. That's why I started making these YouTube videos. And I'm not very good at YouTube videos, he says. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> I would beg to differ. I think you uh, you make your point very well, and I understand uh, you know getting production quality up is tricky. God knows I'm aware of that. Uh, I'm still working on getting mine uh, up to a more professional level. But uh, as with anything, it takes time for things to grow in. Um, uh, anyway, I got a comment here in the middle of that from my friend uh, YTFP Chris says yes along with recently uh, Stopping gluten moving away from anything pre-made too many chemicals even in a cereal uh, Found soy byproduct and chicken and veg broth in a can of tuna now check your labels And I'm right there with that I read labels very carefully and if I can't pronounce it or I wouldn't put it on food I'm not eating it and that's a hard rule to hold because it means 90% of the stuff on the shelves you're not going to be eating. Uh, it really narrows down what you can eat. But I would encourage you to find your local farmers uh, and and hook up with them and uh, you know try to try to find out what they're growing, when they're growing, be supportive of them. Uh, you know, Brad's a, a a big commercial farmer, but there's lots of small farms here in New York that are regenerative or minded, or at least organic. They're at least not spraying chemicals directly on your food. Hook up with them, support them, help them, and if you know information that maybe they don't know, don't be afraid to open a conversation and share it with them. Uh, you know, if they're not open to it, they're not open to it. But it doesn't hurt to at least share the information and maybe open their mind a little bit and change their perspective. Um, so uh so brad says but i'd like to think i'm pretty good at the higher nutrient dense and regenerative farming you don't have to go up against the largest ag monopoly in the world and walk away if you don't have a few aces and boy is that true it's amazing that you've su survived it thus far brad and uh looks like you're starting to thrive through it i'm really glad to see that and uh, really glad to to have made a connection with you and you found your channel and to be learning from you and i'm even super stoked that you're actually learning something from me uh that makes me feel really good. So um, Bomber wants to know, what do we ask farmers at a local farmer's market to be sure we are getting non-GMO produce? Um, well, organic is, uh, is, to my knowledge, they're not allowed to use GMO anything in anything that's labeled organic. Um, maybe Brad could confirm on that for me. Um, but... Uh, But uh, look for organic. Uh, but you know, open the conversation when you go. If you're going to a farmer's market, open the open the. Yeah, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, bomber. Brad says, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is hard to tell. They keep messing with this whole uh, labeling laws and all that kind of stuff, and that's why there is a huge movement to try and. Uh, push labeling so that at least you have to put GMO on the label if there's GMO in it. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of resistance to that because there is a lot of our food supply is coming from GMO crops. And if they do that, then they got to admit, you know, what's really going on in our food supply. And that, uh, 
that's a very complex issue both financially and politically and uh, and as you know uh, <laughs> all of those systems are sort of screwy already to begin with so once you get into that you're uh, you're climbing down the big rabbit hole uh, Alice isn't going to be 10 feet tall she's going to be 100 feet tall so you better be ready with your David and Goliath slingshot just saying uh, let's see uh, Brad says that's really our biggest mission is to create a food label people can trust there isn't uh, one on the market today and yes exactly and that's part of why I encourage uh, part of why I encourage people to work with local farmers as much as they can ask about where their produce is coming from when you go to the store bug take the time to bug the guy in the produce department and ask him where's it coming from how was it grown find out more information about it if we have lots of consumers doing that all the time they're going to start to get the message that hey we better shift our sources and be getting sources that the customers approve of because we don't we're going to lose our market that's the only way we can really vote in this system vote with your dollars that is tremendously powerful don't forget you got the cookie or they got the cookie and you maybe don't want it <laughs> um, anyway so that's kind of what Brad's doing. Well, that's exactly what Brad's doing is trying to educate people and and uh, and produce a product that people want more. And if that demand for that product goes up, if you have the choice between organic, regenerative, agriculturally farmed stuff that has those trace minerals and enzymes and gives that health that those uh, products give versus something that isn't, what are you gonna choose? If you can afford it, you're gonna choose it. And the reality is regenerative agriculture doesn't have to be more expensive than conventional agriculture. In fact, it can be less expensive over time when we get this into the, the bigger growing systems. Uh, Brad says, I have the benefit of a multi-generational 100-year-old seed company. I understand how much of this starts with the seed. And yes, exactly. Uh, the seed is super, super critical. Uh, I learned this quite some time ago uh, let me just go back to bombers question here quickly before I continue on though um, yeah ask ask in the farmers market ask where it's grown ask how it's grown ask what their practices are ask if they use any pesticides organic or or conventional uh, ask what they're using for their fertility program ask if they're getting soil tested ask if they're doing plant sap analysis ask if they're adjusting for trace mineral nutrition you know dig into it and this means that consumers once again have to take responsibility for themselves and you know this brings back to a really good point when it comes back to uh, the concept of liberty and freedom and that sort of thing having liberty and freedom means you're responsible for yourself it's just part of that system so these people who want liberty and freedom but they want someone else to protect them now what you want is someone else to protect you and no one else is going to protect you without you end up compromising yourself in some way so and that goes for the food supply too. educate yourselves about the food systems and use channels like grow the farm up and the pharmacy seeds network and listen here on truth frequency radio we have lots of awesome hosts and they're talking to all kinds of people all over the planet every single day and let me tell you, the topic of food comes up. The topic of human health comes up. Those topics come up a lot. And there's lots of people with lots of knowledge out there. Seek that knowledge. Share it with others. This is like one of the most important parts of this process. 
Uh, my good friend Lucky uh, has the show Quantum Connections. I think she's on Mondays and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Is that correct, Lucky? I think that's correct. Uh, you know, they talk about all kinds of stuff that relates to farming and economics. And uh, and I've, been, I've actually been on her show a couple times talking about farming specifically. So, you know, seek that information, share it. And, uh, and keep asking questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. If you go to a farmer's market and you're asking somebody questions about how they produce something and they don't want to tell you, there's something they're hiding. I'm more than happy to share any information that my customers ask about. And there's been times that we've gone out and walked out here and I've explained some of these processes to people in detail, uh, some of the complex things that we do here that really are just mimicking natural systems, but it's complex if you don't understand those systems. Uh, let's see. Brad says, uh, I figured out that I was at the intersection of continuing to be part of the problem or recognizing I could risk everything and become part of the solution. Now that I'm in 10 years on the other side of the epic battle and coming out of it better off with more customers than I can handle, I know I've made the right call. And many people said I was wrong at the time. <laughs> yeah, Brad, I, uh, I know what you mean. I've had lots of uh, naysayers along the way. And I just never, I just turned their static down and kept going because I knew in my heart, I knew my intuition, and I knew from the science that what I was learning and doing and trying to do was the right thing to do, both ethically and for health and for the planet and so on and so forth. And, you know, those pieces all tie back into everything else. We have lots of people in our society with mental health issues right now. We see that exploding right now with this whole uh, COVID situation that's going on and then all the crazy politics stuff that's going on, we see the insanity starting to come out. I would like to say that I think that a big part of that goes back to the nutrition that these people are eating. You know, you can't really be loving or helpful to other people around you or uh, be an integrated part of your community if you're sick. If you're sick or in pain, you know, you're always kind of in this defensive position and then you can't be growing if you're in a defensive position. So uh, all these pieces really do tie together from so many different perspectives. Uh, let's see. Uh, Bomber says, by law, we have to we have to label where the produce comes from. It's illegal up here in Canada not to have the country of origin label on the product and on the price tag. Yeah, we have that too here, Bomber. But, uh, you know, country of origin is one thing but uh, none of the none of the actual practices of how it was grown is coming through and uh, and that's what we kind of need to plug back in more and I understand that's hard to do on a commercial scale so let's fix the fix the commercial system uh, you know and get it back into regenerative agriculture that's how we heal our soils and fix our lands and it's not just healing our soils and fixing our human health it also heals our streams and our forests and our ecology you know we're affecting so many other animals and ecosystems on this planet with our bad practices and our chemicals and uh, you know our just our destructive nature our destructive mentality toward nature you know and it just doesn't take all that much to to tweak the other way and start using productive practices that are regenerative um, we can really save a lot of a lot of these damaged ecosystems and bring them back and restore them much more quickly than you might think. Uh, and then uh, YTFP says, and best of all, grow your own if you can, but then you know how it was grown and it lowers your carbon footprint. Yes, exactly, YT. Uh, and you know, the other thing is, uh, 
that brings up a point about uh, farming. You know, we have these huge, massive agricultural farming systems, and in a way, you know, we kind of need those. Just the way our societal structures are set up, uh, primarily because we have so many cities, and it's hard to grow tremendous amounts of food in concrete. Uh, you know, in, in limited space and in limited real estate. Um, so, you know, to some degree that does make sense. But also, the more small farms we get, the more independent farmers we get, the more we have the effect of a peer-to-peer network. And if you have a peer-to-peer network, you know, you're not as susceptible to any one, uh, any one negative input or damage or impact, you know. Like, if you have a single server that's serving everything, and that server goes down, you're screwed. There's a reason that YouTube doesn't use one giant mainframe server for everything. There's a reason they have servers spread all over the planet, all doing redundant jobs. And if we apply that same mentality to agriculture, that'll really help sure up our food supply and make us much more resilient to droughts, threats, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, all this uh, crazy uh, weather ramping up things that's going on as well uh you know our climate change or global warming or whatever you want to call it i don't think we're in a warming phase actually i think we're in a cooling phase um but you know regardless of where you side on that argument you can't you said i am i still on youtube um let's see uh and grow the farm up says uh, Canada just changed their seed licenses laws. It's a totally different legal realm up there. Uh, you are correct. Um, and Bomber says, thank you. I'll try to remember that for next year. I have a list of veggies I'd like to grow, but don't want to grow from garbage seeds they sell here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, get organic seeds, Bomber. Uh, I know there's a company called Baker Creek Seed. Um, they have some excellent uh, quality seeds. And also, if you get the organic seed from Johnny's Selected Seeds, those are both U.S. companies, by the way. Sorry. Uh, I don't know any Canadian seed companies. I'm sure there are some. Uh, but those guys sell good seed. Um, and they're, they're very dedicated to non-GMO. At least Baker Creek is. Uh, and I think Johnny's is as well. Um, uh, anyway, they're up right near you. They're up in Maine, Bomber, so they're not too far from upstairs in Canada there. <laughs> uh, YTFP Chris says, there's really not that many GMO seeds. GMO is more geared toward common mass-produced crops, but those seeds might have been raised in contaminated soil, though. Yeah, there's that, and there's also the potential for contamination. I know uh, when I was growing uh, Hope I Blue Flower Corn here, I had uh, one of the farmers next to me growing a GMO uh corn seed here and I was concerned about my planting time because I didn't want to get cross-contaminated with GMO seed because this is seed that I've been developing and trying to bring forward and build nutrition in and I've been getting yields up and getting the quality up but man all it takes is a farmer next to me with GMO seed uh, you know pollinating at the same time and I get even a couple pollen grains into mine now I've got that contamination in my crop and I have no recourse for it. I have no way to get rid of it. And unless I'm doing testing all the time, which by the way, testing is expensive. I'm on a very small scale here. I don't even have a way to know that it's been contaminated. That's one of the things that really scares me the most about GMO. Uh, as far as buying non-GMO foods, you know, if you do your research and you look into things, you can, you can work your way around that. Uh, let's see. Um, 
Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, oh, uh, welcome, Julia. Glad you made it in. Uh, let's see. Brad says, all living things on Earth are carbon-based, including the soil. Everything attaches to the carbon chain. If we could keep Mother Earth green year-round, we could sequester so much more CO2. Yeah, we could actually make it probably an oxygen-rich environment pretty quick if we did that. Um, yeah, it's really amazing. And, uh, and uh, you know, I this whole I've seen people have this whole argument about, uh, you know, people... Uh, you know, cows being this huge carbon footprint on the planet. Well, yeah, if you're sticking them in feedlots and you're out there using, uh, you know, you're using grains to feed them, you're farming those with oil, you know, oil-based products, oil fuels, oil-based uh, fertilizers and chemicals and pesticides and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you have a huge carbon footprint. But if you take those same cows and you put them into a rotational grazing system and you use them in regenerative agriculture, now you've got a carbon sequestering system, a massive one, and you're amplifying your soils and your crop health. And those cows are, uh, you know, putting biology back into the soil as well as nutrition. It's really amazing how quickly that little tiny tweak in one direction or another makes a huge huge difference um brad says uh in fact uh oh i got echo again why does this mic keep turning itself back on okay it should be okay now um brad says in fact i want the co2 in my soil where it belongs that's part of what regenerative farming is all about over tillage releases the carbon into the air Yes, exactly. More greenhouse gases are admitted, are admitted, or uh, emitted from tilling highly commercial, commercially fertilized acres to the hundreds of millions. If you think about it, commercial fertilizers are made from things like natural gas. Yes, exactly. And in fact, after World War II, that's when we started using all these chemical fertilizers. Basically, we brought all this ammonium nitrate home. We didn't have anybody else to blow up with it, so we had to repurpose it, and that's when it became a big thing in the farming system. And, uh, you know, sure, you put that stuff on, you get this tremendous growth response early on. But in the process, you've killed all the biology in the soil, and you've made those plants now dependent on being spoon-fed with chemical fertilizers. And as soon as you do that, you've compromised the biology in that soil for the entire rest of the growing season. And so now you can't take on microbial metabolites. And for the rest of that growing season, you're killing biology. And while you're killing biology, what do you think is happening to that soil? It's breaking down, and it's releasing more carbon. And as you're releasing more carbon, now you have a less healthy soil. And so... You know, you can either go in a regenerative direction or destructive direction, but not both at the same time. So anytime you're uh, growing something or farming something, thank you so much, Geeky, appreciate it. Anytime you're growing something or farming something, you know, if you just look at, at nature and study and mimic nature, whatever nature is doing, try to observe that and pay attention to it and try to implement that in your systems. I know since I've uh, become more aware of this over, you know, since of kind of on this journey of learning regenerative agriculture and and trying to get better and better at it and learn more and more um i i've really found that i find myself studying nature and I, i've started to really notice subtle things that i didn't notice before um i've done a few videos on this and uh, and also on changing your perspectives and i'll continue to do more videos on my youtube channel about that kind of stuff because they really are uh it's really interesting when you start observing it. One Pollination, welcome. Uh, my friend One Polly is in here on the YouTube chat. So great to see you, One Polly. I know you've been MIA for a while. 
think you had some stuff going on in your life. I'm, I'm glad to see you here. I hope you're doing well. Uh, really appreciate your uh, support and coming in. And uh, yeah, Julia, yeah, we're, uh, we're uh, dual streaming here on Truth Frequency Radio and also here on uh, the Pharmacies Network YouTube channel. Uh, it is Tuesday night, 9 p.m. Pacific. Uh, for two hours uh and if you're uh, that's uh pacific time if you're in eastern time it's wednesday morning 12 a.m same thing for two hours so it's a two-hour show here on truth frequency radio and on the pharmacy seeds network uh, let me just take a look at the time here and see how close we're getting to the break so i don't uh run us into the break looks like we've got a, just about four minutes left for the before the next break comes up um oh boy did i miss anything I, i'm sure i missed something um <laughs> anyway, uh, this conversation is excellent. Um, oh, here we go. There's uh, another comment from Brad. Uh, much like Roundup after World War II, it worked really well for my great-grandfather for about 10 to 15 years. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting about that, Brad. It's that 10 to 15-year cycle seems to be uh, the thing with any of those destructive-type farming systems. It's interesting. That's just about long enough for a person to get used to a system like that really get into it and sold on it get implemented in it and 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 you know make it a, a practice and kind of like forget that there's another option or another system it's interesting how that timeline works and, and i know you were saying you've been doing this for i think you said you're about a decade in is that right uh, you're, uh, he said, uh, you're spot on. It's getting pretty late. We're going to have to set up a Zoom or call in or something sometime next week or so and really drill down on some of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. Um, I tried to have a guest on last week, but I had something going on with my Skype here, and I was unable to bring them into the conference call. Well, I'm unable to bring them into uh, OBS Studio to stream them uh, via YouTube. So I'm working my way around that. I just haven't had a chance to tear into my computer and uh, and do some upgrades here that I have to do to make that work for my setup. Uh, but yeah, we definitely have lots to talk about. And I'm really stoked that you're here and participating in the chat. And uh, I'm really glad to have made your acquaintance. And I'm really looking forward to our discussions because... Uh, I have a feeling we're gonna we're gonna end up talking more than one show um, because there's just so much to cover and uh, there's so many little eccentricities and details and uh, and I know you have a, an awesome perspective from a larger scale that I don't have the privilege of having. Um, let's see. He says uh, there's so much going on in the seed industry that leads to the food industry and how they tie together what the big companies are doing versus what independent companies are trying to accomplish. Yeah, I'm sure there's a, a tremendous amount of crazy dynamics involved with that. I have no doubt that that is, uh, that is the case. Um, <clears throat> and I have a question here from one Polly. Uh, what, what you what, uh, how do you feel about vertical farm farming uh, in response to hurricanes? Uh, vertical farming in response to hurricanes... Um, I'm not sure in what context you mean that question one, Polly. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more? Um, let's see. And uh, Brad says, there is a battle going on. I, I don't know if it's good versus evil or if it's just common sense versus greed. Fortunately, the people are waking up. And the first food label people can trust. Oh, and uh, 
Thanks, uh, Jack uh, from Geeky Gardens uh, says there is an OBS plugin that works with Skype. And with that, we're over to the break. So uh, I will see you guys on the other side of the break, and we'll do our final half hour. Uh, stay tuned to Comrades and Farms here on Truth Frequency Radio. We're back on TFR. Let me just make sure my mic is live on YouTube. Yep, looks like it is. Uh, you guys could just tell me if I'm still streaming on TFR. Uh, I had a network error here, and uh, my connection dropped to the studio. So uh, please just uh, throw me a little feedback. Let me know if I'm uh, if I'm working or not. Man, DSL is definitely not my favorite. Audio is good on YouTube. That's good. All right. Uh, Refresh fixed it. Good, good, good. Yeah, I had a total connection drop here during the break. Glad it happened during the break. Um, try a refresh there, uh, Mr. Mr. Jarvis. TFR sounding good from Lucky. All right, good, good. So uh, welcome back from the break. Uh, this is Comrades and Farbs here on Truth Frequency Radio. Uh, so far, we've talked about regenerative agriculture uh, pretty extensively and also uh, bees. Uh, I did have a question here from uh, from Julia about worms. She was asking if she could add worms. Let me see if I can find the question here. Um, she was asking if she could add worms to her garden, I think. Uh, but I know there's a certain type of wor uh, worm we have to be careful about, at least according to uh, New York State DEC. Um, I don't know, I'm having trouble finding the uh, finding the question here. Uh, but Julie, uh, basically just be aware, uh, there there uh, is a certain kind of worm that is known to actually, they actually are depleting the uh, leaves on the surface of the forest really, really fast. I think they have a problem with them up in the Adirondacks. Um, and there, there were fishing worms, and I forget what the type is, but look into it and make sure you're not using those. Um, we just don't want to uh, put the wrong worms into the system and, and uh, mess up our systems even more. Yeah, just a classic red worm is always a good choice. Uh, that's what Brad says. And uh, I would definitely 100% trust Brad's advice on that. Yeah, uh, and the reality is you shouldn't have to put worms in, Julia. If you uh, get your mulches and soil right, you'll draw the worms in. Uh, one of the best tools for that, actually this is a great thing to discuss while we're, we're at it, one of the best tools for that is uh, mulching on your soils. I know you've got a, a garden, I know you're not a uh, like a farm scale grower. Uh, for me, mulching uh, large areas takes a tremendous amount of material because a, a good mulch really needs to be uh, you know, like six or eight inches thick. You really need a really heavy mulch, and that suppresses weeds and maintains soil biology. And when you get that soil biology running right, you'll put on six or eight inches, and in two months, that mulch will be gone. You've got to replace it. So it takes a tremendous amount to do it. And that's part of why we use, uh, part of why we use regenerative agriculture and cover crops uh, in place of using mulches, instead of covering our soils in in commercial scale agriculture or even my scale where it takes so much material to get mulch and and either you're buying it it's expensive or you got to make it on the farm or in my case i go out with a mower and i mow huge areas of field and then i rake that up and uh 
I break that up and then I bring that and import that. That's a lot of extra work, a lot of extra fuel involved, and frankly, you can grow those mulches right in place. So that's why we use cover crops. However, on your small scale in your garden, one of the most powerful tools you can use are good mulches. And I would recommend something like a sheet mulch followed up with a good organic mulch. A sheet mulch is something like cardboard or newspaper set down in a thick layer, ideally like a corrugated cardboard, that is one of my favorite materials for small scale, for bringing worms in. You put down a heavy cardboard like that, you wet it first and you put it down. It is basically like doing paper mache on top of the soil and it forms this armor on the soil. So that protects the microbes and the worms. And then you put a heavy mulch like grass or leaves or wood chips or whatever you can get, you know, that's available in your area that's not expensive or, or hard to get. You put that down real thick on top of that, and now all that carbon and uh, all that carbon in the in the um, in the cardboard and in the and in the mulch also draws those worms in. They come in under there because it's nice and moist, and there's food for them. And and later on, like a month later, when you go back and peel that mulch back and peel that cardboard back, all you'll see in there is this huge population of worms. And for those who don't know. Worms are sort of biologically, for the soil, worms are sort of like a cross between a chicken and a cow. And um, that's a really powerful tool because cows are ruminant animals and basically the soil is the digestive tract of the plant. And so kind of what we're trying to do is mimic the digestive tract of a cow, for example, or a ruminant animal, animal in the soil. And uh, so, so worms are a great way to mimic that and they produce biology. They drill holes in the soil, which allows for oxygen and carbon dioxide to exchange in and out of that soil for the microbes in the soil. And they also make a hole that as plants go down and they're trying to find their way down and put a root down, that hole that those worms make makes for a really easy place for a root to go down. And guess what? It's loaded with biology and nutrition all at the same time. So uh, that's that. I hope I'm still, uh, yeah, it looks like I'm still rolling here. Boy, Skype is giving me a hard time tonight. Uh, let's see. So uh, I'm going to go back and read here. Uh, uh, YT says uh, you can also uh, buy worm eggs, which is sometimes better. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I remember seeing worm eggs. I did some worm bins for a while. Uh, for composting and uh, you can actually see the worm eggs that's an interesting process if you haven't done it uh, that is a great way to build your own uh, organic soil and make an excellent excellent fertilizer for your garden um, and worm bins are really easy to manage and you can be composting your own material in them and you can put anything from newspaper to cardboard to uh, to compost like from your kitchen scraps to on down the list uh, the only thing I wouldn't put in there would be uh, like meat, like, uh, you know, bad uh, steaks or chicken or something like that. But other than that, they, uh, they'll turn all that into high nitrogen, high calcium, high biology um, material for your garden. Uh, let's see. Uh, Brad from Grow the Farm Up says, bingo, there was an entire scam industry of worm farmers in the late 90s. Uh, that's literally how much we've killed our soil in the Midwest. Yeah, exactly. And, like, you can put those worms down, but if, they d if you don't have an environment where they can survive in or thrive in, and it doesn't matter how. It's like putting chickens out in an open field and not giving them food or water, and you come back three weeks later and you're surprised that 
you know, there's chicken skeletons laying out there. <laughs> Uh, people came out and started entire businesses to try to spread worms on our soil. Just think about that for a minute and how backwards that is. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Bomber, I, I can't take a call on Skype on my local connection. He would have to call into the studio um, in order to do it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not even sure I have that mastered yet, but... Uh, <laughs> But thank you for uh, for trying to help uh, foster that connection. I appreciate it. Um, let's see. YTFP says uh, you can put worm eggs in your compost pile, but might want to talk uh, to more experts than me. Uh, Brad says whenever whenever everybody's going in one direction, I have found I turn 180 degrees and go the other other direction. It's been a recipe for success in my entire life. The biology of soil is so dead they tried to spread worms on. Yeah, I found that too, Brad, and uh, swimming upstream can be rough at first, but uh, it seems to get easier once you get over a few waterfalls, huh? <laughs> um, uh, Geeky Gardens has a comment here. A black tree, keep mulch on all year long. Add more when it breaks down. Yeah, Julie, if you go on my channel and look back, uh, I forget what video specifically, but back in the spring, I did a video uh, where I compared... Uh, near the uh, near the crimson beefsteak tomatoes I had put down a layer of mulch about six or eight inches thick it was a really heavy duty layer of mulch I put that down late in the season I think it was late September when that went down and uh, you know in New York here our temperatures drop pretty quick by late September we're getting you know we're getting down into uh, upper 50s if not lower 40s at night uh, by the end of the month and so we're kind of setting into a winter season there and usually uh, you know, most people put mulch on that time of year. That mulch will still be there next spring, still be there, you know, halfway through the growing season. Um, but here where I've got my biology accelerated and I've started to open these soils up and get things really rocking, that six or eight inches of mulch was gone in April when I went out there. And I was actually astounded that my mulch was gone. But it, it had been consumed by uh, by microbes and worms and uh, and I had to replace it. So it's really amazing, and that was a that was a uh, a grass-based mulch, which I find tends to last a little longer versus like a leaf mulch, which is a super nutrient booster and an excellent mulch. But I find you go through it very quickly. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, and let me see. If she. Uh, uh, oh, and she. Uh, she also asked. Uh, Julia also asked, uh, do I mulch in the fall or the spring? Uh, both. Always keep your soil covered, Julia. Um, just remember, if if you wouldn't want to lay out in that sunlight yourself um, and be exposed to those conditions for, you know, more than a couple hours, those microbes in the soil feel the same way about it. In fact, they have even less of a survival time when exposed to UV light, high temperatures, too much oxygen or too much carbon dioxide, you know those those environment that condition on top of the soil where the sun is out there blasting and the, the temperatures are swinging up and down. Those are very harsh conditions to life. Just remember, we're trying to foster life here, so uh, those microbes need to be protected in the soil year-round. And uh, if you do that, you'll find tremendous gains. And if you keep mulches on your soils, you'll see the worms come into your soil. You'll be astounded at the hundreds and thousands of worms that show up. They uh they take their marching orders from the mulch. 
Uh, yeah, Bomber says, use old leaves in the spring after the temp hits 10C. Insects, etc. will have left the beds. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, actually, uh, yeah, if you have leaf mulch available to you, uh, that is absolutely one of the best um, mulches that I've found to date as far as putting mulch down. In fact, I have one block here uh, on this farm where I went down. It's a maple stand. It's a hard maple stand. And I'm hoping in the future to uh, tap that again and make maple syrup with it. Um, and so I went through and I did some brush hogging in there. <laughs> I say brush hogging. I basically took my John Deere lawnmower, ran it down on low RPM, put the deck up on high, and blazed over rose bushes and everything else in my way. And I went back with my thatch rake and raked up all that debris and especially that leaf mulch. And that's what I uh, mulched uh, my garlic crop with a couple of years back. And man, was that fantastic stuff. And I was able to get it on nice and thick like it needed to be. Uh, I wish I could do that every year, but again, I'm trying to build regenerative systems. And if I'm going out into this forest and robbing an acre of that forest of mulch from the same place every year, you know, now I'm depreciating that system as well. So, you know, how long can I take from that system before it starts to degrade? I don't want to do that. My whole goal is to be fostering biology. And so that's part of why I'm transitioning to more and more cover cropping. And I'm finding some really excellent success with that, even in the early stages of that. And I can't wait to see how things go as I add species. Uh, this year I added sweet clover and uh, rye to my rotations. And uh, the sweet clover, the first planted of sweet clover that I put in is really taking off well. I finally think I got that figured out with germination. The real trick with sweet clover, it seems, is to have a good, uh, a good um, uh, nurse crop with it. So I used buckwheat for that. And so basically, the buckwheat gets drilled in and germinates and grows up, and that provides sort of a cover, a cover, which kind of helps facilitate keeping moisture and keeping the sunlight off of those seeds of the sweet clover that are on top of the soil. Um, so they can kind of germinate and get started, and uh, they're protected from sunlight a little bit. And then now, actually, I just uh, uploaded a video today. If you go to my channel, it's the most recent video. Um, today, I was looking at that sweet clover in and under that canopy, and it's really established well, and it's doing well. And I've got another planting down in another spot that went in later, and I can't wait to see how that establishes that was planted directly into uh, a short-mode grass area that is primarily white clover and red clover and yarrow. So I can't wait to see how that evolves. Um, and then the rye, I uh, have germination on the, on the rye that I've used for cover crops, but I've never grown rye before, so I'm kind of just waiting to let that show itself a little more so I can kind of uh, distinguish it from weeds and other grasses. Um, I have an, uh, another, uh, oh, I have a question here from Julia. Uh, is, it, is it cooler here? Um, yeah, it's still fairly warm here, Julia. Actually, we had uh, like 85 today and sunny. Uh, the nights, well, tonight it's actually relatively warm out. Uh, but usually by this time of year, like last week, we were down into lower 50s, upper 40s. Well, not upper 40s, but lower 50s here last week. And usually this time of year, things start to cool down pretty dramatically at night. We still get some nice warm temps in the daytime. We can still get 95 in the end of September and even into October. Uh, but man, when that sun goes down, those temps drop fast. Uh, I have a question from, bom from Bomber here also uh, in the YouTube chat. Uh, farm is it necessary to break the leaves up for mulch 
I use whole maple leaves. It seems to work for me, but I'm not sure if it would be better broken up. I don't have the ability to break it up prior. Um, no, it's not necessary to do that. Uh, in fact, I find that when you don't break them up, they tend to last a little longer. They tend. The downside is they tend to pack together in a mat because they're flat leaves on flat leaves, and of course they're going to fall on their flattest surface, so you end up with a mat. But depending on what you're doing, that can actually work to your advantage. Now, if you want them to break down faster, that chopping does help because it, you know, it opens up more surface area. And when you, whenever you have more surface area, whether it's biology or chemical processes, more of that can happen simultaneously. Um, so it really depends on how you want to manage it. I would say no. If you don't have a way to break them up, don't break them up. Just rake them up, put them on, and use them. And uh, you know, nature's not breaking them up. You know, like. Uh, there's not there's not a mower out in the forest to make sure those leaves are broken up so they come back. The biology, that's what the biology is responsible for doing. That's its job. So uh, let them go to work. Send them to work. Help them work. Excuse me a sec here. I, uh, I cough. <coughs> <coughs> uh, so... Um, let me move on down to chat here. Uh, oh, hey, Nessie Monster's here. Welcome, Nessie. Uh, she says we grow buckwheat and red clover as a mulch crop, and it works well. Awesome. Yeah, uh, red clover is one I actually want to add to my list. Uh, but clover seed is fairly expensive, and so I haven't gotten around to red clover. Um, someone else here had seeded white clover in a couple of spots here uh, for deer hunting or for deer luring reasons uh, many years back. And so through uh, through some very careful management and mowing, I've been able to facilitate that clover to grow out and to provide it an environment where it can grow out. And so now it's multiplied all over the farm here. And it's, and it's an excellent nitrogen fixer. It doesn't grow too tall, so I don't, like I can leave it on and not have to mow down heavily in order to have a, a grass that's not so tall that I, it's unmanageable. And at the same time, it's fixing nitrogen and providing uh, a pollen and nectar crop for honeybees. So I really love white clover. Red clover is an awesome one too, but it's a much taller stature. But I definitely want to add that. And I also want to add crimson clover to my rotation. Um, that's another one that's more of a, uh, a warmer climate clover, but um, very interesting. The clovers are an excellent family of cover crops, especially if you're trying to facilitate good honeybees and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, uh, Nessie, I'm so glad you made it. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming by. Um, let's see what else. Uh, okay, good night, Julia. Have a great evening. Uh, uh, Bomber says I have clover in my pots too. People tell me to pull it, but I leave all that stuff uh, for the soil and the bees. Yeah, there you go, Bomber. Yeah, uh, you know it doesn't matter what scale you're doing this. Um, the more diversity you can have in your uh, in your garden or farming or even in your potted plants, the better off you're going to be. Um, I have an example of that out here. I have a fig tree that a friend of mine, my Bob, uh, my friend, my Bob, my friend Bob uh, K2LD, an amateur radio friend of mine, gave me this uh, fig tree this spring, and uh, I put it into a pot. And then over time, I've added uh, some holy basil and some uh, red nasturtiums and all sorts of stuff like that. So. Um, really cool to uh, to play with that in potted systems and it may even play with some I'm trying to figure out 
what a good flowering crop would be that I could kind of sprinkle in the greenhouse in say late February or early March and potentially have uh, in late March or early April before other flowers are opening have something that uh, besides the uh, the flowering uh, Meyer lemon tree uh, that I have in my greenhouse besides that something else that the honeybees could come into the greenhouse after have a pollen and nectar source even before uh, natural pollen and nectar sources are available and I wish I had a much bigger greenhouse because I'd love to implement that on a bigger scale um, but for now I'm just working with the scale I have um, and uh, Bomber says also uh, her bunny uh, leave that for the stuff for the soil and the bees and also for her bunny who I'm sure loves to chew on some fresh greens uh, <laughs> yeah for those who don't know uh, Bomber has a, an awesome uh, pet uh, named Hassenfeather, who's a bunny, uh, as well as a couple of really sweet kitty cats. Um, anyway, so uh, I hope I've answered most of those questions uh, regarding that sort of stuff. Um, let me go back. I think I might have missed some chat comments here. I know uh, Kiki says, I don't break up my leaves from mulch, but they are smaller oak leaves. I've seen folks run over their leaves with a lawnmower before using them. Oh, yeah, you could do that. I mean, you could just run through with a... I mean, I know Bomber doesn't have a lawnmower, but uh, you could just run through with a mower to chop things up. Uh, that's usually what I do. Uh, and I actually probably would not even chop those leaves up if I could avoid it. But um, in order to in order to mow the grass short enough to go through with the thatch rake to pick up those mulches, I basically uh, have to go through with the mower. So I end up chopping those leaves up. Makes it a little tougher to pick them up with the thatch rake, but it gets all the tangle, tangled stuff out of the way of the thatch rake, and that's really important because there's nothing more frustrating than trying to run a machine through an area and having to stop every 10 seconds or, okay, I'm exaggerating a bit, but you know, every two minutes to untangle uh, vines or weeds that have gotten caught around it. Uh, so that works out pretty well. Hassan Pfeffer. Sorry, bomber. I probably mispronounced that, but, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily from Canada, eh? I might have my pronunciation wrong. Maybe I just don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I love my Canadian friends. So uh, if you're Canadian, please don't make them think I'm making fun of you. I love you guys. Uh, let's see. Let me catch up on chat here. I'm just going to go over and check in on uh, the TFR chat and see. Make I just want to make sure I haven't missed anybody. Uh, I'm not connected to the call board. Okay, so yeah, I don't know. Don't know what I did wrong there, um, but I'll have to uh, I'll have to straighten that out. Um, so I yeah, so no, I can't I can't take calls uh, this evening or tonight. This evening it's still evening to me. See, that's where my sleep schedule's at. <laughs> anyway, so I can't take calls tonight, but I definitely will be taking calls in the future. And I definitely am very much looking forward to having uh, Brad from Grow the Farm Up on as a guest. And I look forward to many conversations with him. Uh, if he's willing and has the time, I'm sure we can really go down the uh, proverbial rabbit hole. Or maybe in this case, it's the wormhole. Um, but yeah, uh, we can really uh, really dive into some of these topics and discuss some of the, uh, some of the problems and solutions um, in our agricultural systems and hopefully we can educate uh, farmers, gardeners, and consumers 
in a more positive way and get them started on the pathway to better health and better soils. Um, this is really a big part of the root cause of many of the health issues we have today. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's really hard to, you know, it's easy to say that. It's hard to elaborate for people who aren't really familiar with uh, some of the problems. It's hard to elaborate that sometimes for them and really help them understand it. But um, through these sort of conversations, we can address that sort of thing. And uh, I think it's fantastic that, uh, that I have another platform to do that on. I'm really, really stoked to be a part of Truth Frequency Radio. And uh, I think we have about two minutes left here. I definitely want to throw some shout-outs. Uh, number one, to my good friend Brent Thomas from the Paranormal Portal. Uh, Brent Thomas has a show here on uh, Truth Frequency Radio on Friday and Saturday nights and also on YouTube. Uh, he's also streaming uh, Wednesday and Thursday on YouTube as well. If you haven't checked out the Paranormal Portal, please do go check it out. He's also got a podcast uh, and several other things. So do a search, Paranormal Portal, and uh, and check out uh, Brent's show. They do investigations and discussions of all sorts of paranormal things. Everything from Bigfoot to cryptids to Wendigos to ghosts to poltergeists. And uh, Brent is a really excellent host and a really wonderful man with a wonderful heart. And uh, I just hope that you'll go check his show out. I also want to give a big shout out to uh, my friend Elizabeth McCabe, a.k.a. Lucky from Quantum Connections. Uh, Lucky also has a show here on Truth Frequency Radio, and she's also got a YouTube channel. It's Truth Frequency News. Um, Lucky helped uh, help me uh, kind of get started here on Truth Frequency Radio, and uh, I really appreciate her help. And so I'm really excited to be a part of this community and to be uh, streaming to you here on Truth Frequency Radio. Um, and to help be part of your protection from deception. With that, I think we got about 30 seconds left here uh, on the show, and I think we're going to go ahead and, uh, and jump out. Anyway, uh, thank you everyone so much for being a part of the show and participating in chat. Uh, I really appreciate your support and your interest, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for watching the Pharmacy Seeds Network. Don't forget to check us out on YouTube, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you soon look forward to seeing you all next week thanks for watching the pharmacy seeds network and comrades and farms here on truth frequency radio